welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. You, you know we've been in a series um, called New Love on the Holy Spirit, and we need the, we need the Spirit. Uh, given our sort of social climate, and uh, but we felt like we needed to make a shift today and next week. And so let me tell you how this is going to go. We needed to make a shift because there's a lot of people talking, a lot of people hurting, uh, there's a lot of confusion, and for others, there's a lot of clarity. And uh, exciting. There's there's different responses, and uh, this is our opportunity as a church to be the church and to give a gospel response. And so we wanted to kind of describe two rhythms today and next week in terms of how we're going to go. Are we going to answer everything? Are we going to satisfy every doubt? Are we going to be able to deal with every issue? Probably not. Um, but what we, what we want to do today and next week, um, today we want to we want to process. We want to process a moment, right? We want to kind of think through me and Pastor Rick and Josh and Leroy and others were on the phone for a couple hours yesterday, kind of processing and thinking out loud and trying to figure out how do we how do we tackle some of these issues. Uh, I've got a number of emails, texts, people hit me up on Facebook, angry, upset, or and some uh, excited about what's happening in this election season. Um, we've had people say we're leaving the church. Uh, 80% of evangelicals voted for him. How can I trust the church anymore? We, we've gotten that. Um, and so we, we want to we want to talk about it. Uh, this is a this is an occasion for the church to step up and not kind of walk around these issues or stop short of them. We want to dive deeper into it. So we realize a couple of things. For some of you, you might say, "All right, the elections happen. Let's move on." Uh, and then there's others that are like, "You know what? Uh, in order for me to move on, I got to move into these issues and think about them deeper." And so we got to do both today, right? This week and next week. For some of you that say move on, I, I hope you have the compassion and grace that Jesus demands of us to help us all move into these issues first. And for some of you, to move in is to move on. And so next week, we're going to hit more of a kingdom response next week about what does unity look like? What does the gospel look like in these areas. How do we unify? How do we move forward as the church and be counter to the culture and society we live in? So today we're going to just we're going to process, think out loud. Uh, you might like some of the things you hear. You might not like everything you hear. We're not here to get in the weeds of politics. We're not here necessarily to be partisan. But we do want. I do want you to hear sort of our varying perspective on some of these issues from a gospel lens. So we want to kind of get out on the veranda 
and look at it from a bird's eye perspective and hit these big things that we saw and how the gospel addresses those and processes those. And then we want to call everybody to the table and lament and come together as the body of Christ and break bread and remember the ultimate book um, and what God has ultimately called us to. So, with that being said, I wanted to frame that in. Um, and this is Josh Butler, one of the smartest men I know, much smarter than me. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of our pastors here at Imago. Uh, Leroy and Rick, Pastor Rick, are hitting Central City, both services. Uh, um, Josh is joining me this morning. Next week, we're going to have a broader voice. We're going to broader voices into this. Uh, Danielle Mayfield, one of our Eastside members, she will sit on sort of this discussion. She works at, she lives and works out in Rockwood. She's going to give some perspectives from refugees and immigrants and things that she's hearing. So it'll be larger voices next week as we look to move on in these issues. But let's 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 get going. Let's dive in. Let's yeah. dive in. Um, today we're gonna sit, I think we all agree we're gonna sit in tension. Okay? We don't have to be either or today, right? We can be both and. Today, let's sit in tension today. Let's not try and put a bow on this. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> we don't need pithy answers or, or a band-aid over these issues. Let's just process them and think. So in terms of lamenting, what does that what does that mean? What does that look like to you, Joe? Yeah, man. You know, so I would just say one of the things this week has really exposed, I think, for me and for probably all of us, has been uh, the deep division in our society. And I've, I've been struck by there's a philosopher Slavo Zizek who referred to it as the what he called the eruption of the real. Right? And what he meant was uh, it's not like the election created these divisions, but it did bring them out into the surface, into the public light. And so I think uh, there's the pain. I, I think this week as 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 a society, as a country, we've kind of seen uh, a lot of these divisions and fractures within us come to the surface, and so we see these divisions between urban and rural that have, rural that have become so pronounced. We see uh, these divisions in race between uh, whites generally and peoples of color, and we see divisions in class between kind of low income and elites and all. And so there's all this kind of tension as a society that kind of comes to the surface. And I, I think as a church, we can be, or even as just as Americans, we kind of have this tendency that we want to fix it, right? Like, so how do we, how do we kind of put a band-aid over the fractures? How do we sort of take the chasm and just sort of cross over it, paste over it? Uh, and we're often not very good at being able to sit in the tension together and actually try and uh, communicate and, and sit with one another. And I think that's where I think the power of lament in the biblical tradition has been uh, creating space where we don't need to necessarily fix it, but we can actually cry out before God. And I've seen some in the church where I feel like I are too quick to slap a God's on the throne, you know, thing over it, where it, it can feel like, um, it, you know, it, because God's on the throne, we don't need to lament. And I think biblically it works the opposite direction, right? It's not either God's on the throne or we lament. It's because God's on the throne, we can lament, right? Like we see the psalmists and we see lamentations bring the cry before God of recognizing the division and the fracturing. And I think, Mike, you said earlier, I thought it was powerful too. It's, it, the lament is not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily as a church that we're going, uh, Trump won, uh, let's be sad together, but it's going uh, wherever you stand politically uh, on the partisan scale, it's going there is deep division 
division and fracture in our society. And I think we need to have the space to acknowledge those divisions and the, the pain that, that comes for, for many of us, wherever we're coming from, some of the pain that uh, that brings and being able to feel that and process that together and not feel like we got to paste over and pretend it's not there. And I, I think, um, like, when we, like, speaking as an African-American, um, and what lament means for me and our community. Um, I think I think there's this confusion if you're not inside of our community because what happens is, is that you you assume that that um, it's easy to assume that it's just easy to assume that this election is about you know one person being elected to office against their candidate, right? Like the one that they were hoping to get, right? And black folks and communities of color have really no issue uh, with, you know, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat getting into office. You know, I'm sure everybody gets a little disappointed if their guy or their woman didn't get into office, right? But the bigger issue I think I see in our community isn't so much that, that Trump won. Right, if we're to be completely honest. It was more of the platform that we won on. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, and that became the issue, right? The vitriol, the racism, the misogyny, yes. the, um, the disrespect. Um, that was, that, that, that it, it ran on, it forced people in my community to say, really? Are we, are yeah. we in that kind of America now? You know what I mean? And that created all kinds of fears and and concerns and issues. If it was an issue just of politics or, or just an issue of, of economics and stuff like that, and let's say the uh, Republican one, I don't think people are going to have that big of an issue. I think the bigger issue is is, is how, how it was ran, the platform it was ran on, and all the deep divisions that it created, right? And so there's a deep, profound impact that's happening now in our community in terms of, you know, where do we go from here? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my kids? What does it mean for my community moving forward? And so those are some of the bigger issues that I find a lot of African Americans and communities of color lamenting over. Totally, yeah, and, and I, for me as well, I feel like we really, as a nation, as a society, and in my own sort of pocket, so to speak, like need to own our hypocrisy. Like it's it's scary to me the kind of xenophobia that the platform was run out of the, this fear of the the other, and and um, man, and I think it, it, again, it's it's exposed some of those uh, attitudes in our society. I've heard stories and tales this week of even young kids getting accosted by other kids at school, you know, minority children being uh, called names or things by white children. It just, it feels like it brings all that to the surface. And it, I think it's really, since we've seen increasingly in the, over this last year, you know, and then this just brings it even more to the surface. I think that, um, the illusion that we've become a post-racial society, or, you know, is it, it, it's it's naive. I think for us to pretend like those fault lines aren't there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't want to be quick to get to hopeful. Yeah. But to be hopeful, the one thing that I will say to counter some of that lament is the power of communities of color. This, this isn't anything new. 
we live with this kind of vitriol in our country historically for hundreds of years and navigated it fairly well. We live like W.E.B. Du Bois with this sort of double consciousness. So will our community get over this? Absolutely. Will they know how to navigate this? Absolutely. Because they stand on the shoulders. I always say this about the African-American community. Look, it's not so much what Christians did to African-American and other communities of color. It's the fact that these communities survived it and survived it with a rich, vibrant faith. So I have no question, even in the midst of this lament, that they'll be able to navigate it well. In fact, others could take their cues from these communities, right? Because they've had to have shifty feet and navigate these fault lines in very unique and profound ways. And so, so in spite of the contradiction, right? In spite of the tension. So I, I have no question in my mind that we'll be able to navigate it. But at this moment, being able to grieve it, and that's, the, that's what I love about um, these communities because there's such depth and substance to them because it's like I was we were in the back when we were talking I said one of my things that my kid my kids figured out early on in our parenting they realized that if they said sorry quick when they did something wrong they could get out of trouble then we got discerned and we realized they're just apologizing because they just want to move on they don't want to deal with the issue they don't want to feel it and so one of the things I, I do enjoy about our communities is our willingness to sit in this, to understand the magnitude and weight and the depth that it creates as a result of that, as it moves on, right? The tension of it all that creates this profound opportunity to be a witness in the world. So. Mm. Amen. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot that is, uh, you know the, the white community right now has an opportunity to learn from, particularly in the church, from the African American community and, and kind of the response with disillusionment and, and all. I also think one of the things I, I, I've noticed this, this week, just trying to process and observe, has been uh, I do think you know as we look through the lens of race, we we see all these themes we just discussed, but another big theme has been the lens of class, and I think that gives kind of another alternative perspective, you know, and so the narrative of class in the country I think has been one of uh, poor rural you know poor working class rural uh, folks who have felt abandoned and marginalized and left behind by kind of the urban metropolitan affluent wealthy elite centers and you see uh, you know the Facebook Google Goldman Sachs Amazon all the kind of these kind of urban West Coast East Coast uh, industries are, um, are there's this immense wealth being generated but the industrial economy of the middle of the country has collapsed and I have two family friends who have moved uh, into from or from Portland into rural uh, communities this year and they have talked about just how shocked they've been by the uh, the heroin addiction by the ramp poverty by the the children in just desperate conditions by the sense of hopelessness uh, studies as I this week studies have, have shown uh, white rural poor folks are the most pessimistic people group in society today and so um, I, I've been convicted of um, well I, I just I think just recognizing that there's also this kind of class angle this fault line and, and it's been interesting to see I, I feel like both lenses uh, have the narrative of uh, the dominant culture marginalizing, you know, and so you've got on the race end, it feels like the the Trump is like the dominant white elite culture marginalizing race, and on the uh, I think the working class poor, it's a, the dominant urban elite 
uh, you know, have marginalized us. And so there's sort of this pro-Trump. And so I, I don't know any solution to that or any kind of mandate or fix, but, but recognizing again kind of those, uh, those fault lines that this seems to have exposed where class seems like a major one as well. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about that. We were talking about that working class and sort of the Rust Belt of America. And um, uh, and how, how that definitely impacted the election. Um, for me, it, it's always, you know, it always is going to go through a certain level of limits of race. Um, and I do think, I do think, um, like in terms of the evangelical, because we'll get to that in a second, what does it mean to be evangelical? You heard 80% of evangelicals voted for Christianity, voted for Trump, and what does that mean for Christians that don't self-identify that way? But I, I do think, um, on a certain level, my indictment of the church um, I get it because we do have these homogenized churches that don't, you know, as a result, what we lose is, is this ability to look at these different lenses, right? These lenses of class, these lenses of um, race, uh, these lenses of education, you know? Um, and, you know, when we talk about the divisions in our country, I think they're, I think, within the church, our opportunity to respond in moments like this is important, but it's very difficult because we don't sit in these kinds of churches, right? We don't sit in these multicultural, heterogeneous churches. We were able to kind of share and reflect and speak through these issues. I find, you know, like when I was talking to Rick yesterday, every, every thought that I had about the election, he had a counterpoint to good counterpoint to things that I would have never thought through had I had I not been in close proximity to a white guy. So I think I think to a certain degree, us being able to sit together, think through these things, push against each other, challenge each other, and yet have the gospel to kind of level us out and look at something bigger than my own interest has been pretty powerful and profound. Totally. I think for me, one of the you know takeaways this week has been going. You, you know, I'm, I'm Latino, but I recognize that I, you know I've got lighter complexion, edu college education. You know, and so there's a lot of uh, privilege that comes with that. And so within that, rec kind of recognizing that privilege and going, and on the race conversation, like I need to sit and listen to my black brothers and sisters, immigrant community, minority. You know, like I need to be in a posture of listening and hearing the pain there. This is reduced, and likewise on the class end, recognizing like I, I live in Portland, I live in kind of this progressive urban hub, and how insulated I am from the pain of rural, working class, poor white folks in America, and go, I need to sit and listen to that too, because I would almost say one of the dangers I've seen in some of my pockets or social circles, whether that's on Facebook or in conversations or whatever, has been the echo chamber, where uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't, to be straight, I don't know one person who supported Trump, well I know one who lives somewhere else, and, and they're actually Mexican and they put a Trump sign in the front yard and had a big bigot pasted over you know over it but um, but it has been I think one of the things I'm seeing in kind of the white urban progressive piece is this echo chamber of I can't believe those racist misogynist hatred you know all that and uh, and I think uh, 
an unwillingness to kind of break out of the echo chamber and hear some of the pain on both fronts. And I think because we want that quick fix, we want to go, which one, you know, um, yeah, there's a, there's a quickness to kind of gloss over and recognize. Uh, like for me, I guess the takeaway has been, man, I, I, I need to be in a season of really listening on all those fronts and recognizing the, the privilege that comes on the one side for me racially and likewise recognize the privilege that comes on the class side and kind of the urban whole divide. You know, look, I, I'm from Inglewood. I'm from South Central LA. Uh, raised at that time, it was a 99.9% black community. I got a basketball scholarship for Oregon State and went to Corvallis. There ain't no black communities in Corvallis. My whole world turned upside down because I was in a white church for four years. And then I left that and went to a mega white church that I won't tell you the name, but it was at that time, it's changed, but at that time, it was God, guns, and country, Republican. And they were always giving me Thomas Sowell books and telling me to listen to Ellen Keys. And I, I didn't buy it because I came from a family that was progressively left, right? But I came out of that environment and picked up some, some incredible friendships that are like family members to me now. And so I'm not a big social media buff. I'm not Instagram, Snapchat, and do it all. It's just too much access. I keep the antiquated Facebook. But if you got on my Facebook, if you looked at my Facebook friends, I would say a third of my friends are from LA. African American, that vote left, that probably voted for Hillary and Obama. And then there's a third of folks that came out of the fundamentalist evangelical church that I was a youth pastor of. I was the first minority hired there for seven years. They're on my wall, or they're part of my friendship. And then I've got a model. <laughs> That's probably somewhat all over the place. Um, and this, there's that temptation, even during the political season, to alienate and, and to sit in that e echo chamber where the people, like your people, like always that temptation to defriend this. But you need that person for your own good, right? You need that person pushing against. I always say, how do you overcome perspectivism? by getting around people of a different perspective, right? How do you overcome um, your, you know, uh, your own self-interest by getting around someone that doesn't represent your own self-interest, right? And so I found, even during this political season, an opportunity to sit and live out the gospel, to exercise patience, to pastor all people, and not just my people. Uh, to, to love people that don't represent my political views, right? And understand that those political views need to push against my own political views. Even if I retain who I am, I think it's possible. I was in a white, like I said, God gun and country church. How do you navigate that as a black person, right? In this white space and still stay true to who you are. And I think that's the beauty of the gospel is that the gospel allows us to interact with all this very group of people and political and socioeconomic ideals and yet retain at the core of who you are because the gospel frees you up to be who you are. It gives you the courage to be who you are. And so in this political season, I think to a certain degree on all sides we lost an element of that. We lost a piece of that. And we got co-opted by 
Yeah. It's going to be okay. I, I know we're going to get to unity and all that stuff next week. And I know it's a little soon. But as Kendrick Lamar said, it's going to be all right. <laughs> we're going to be all right. <laughs> Well, and I love to, I've been inspired this uh, week even by the character of Daniel, uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, where he owns his people's sin, right? Like, and uh, like he owns his identity with the people as a whole. And I think there's a tendency when we see things we don't like, we want to distance ourselves. And so you mentioned one thing we want to talk about was even with the church and kind of this perception. Um, in reality, you know, the evangelical vote, they say maybe 80% evangelicals voted Trump in. And so that reality and a number of folks who in my circles and progressives, you know, want to distance themselves, and and that is that is what it is. But if we want to talk about that, you know, I do think there's this piece of uh, where we see Daniel uh, not rejoicing in sin, but acknowledging and owning it with his folks rather than using it to, to distance. And, and and for me, just reflecting on that, too, I do think there's a piece where we need to own it. But I've also found among a lot of my friends, I think there can be kind of a misperception that there's a little more nuance to, and there's almost a sense of like, uh, there's this evangelical machine that galvanized and organized folks to get there. And from what I saw, um, most of, like, the even, like on an institutional level, most uh, prominent evangelical leaders, like, loudly, vocally, and publicly denounced Trump. And so you had uh, Russell Moore, the head of the Southern Baptist voice, you know, was just vocally and ardently against Trump throughout the deal. Uh, Andy Crouch, the head of Christianity Today, came out loud and bold against him. Even Wayne Grudem, who if you don't know is like extreme, right, like, uh, initially endorsed and then he turned around and he, he went after Trump when some of the moral character stuff came out. There were a few, I think, like Falwell and um, uh, you know, but you know there were some. But I, I think uh, the dominant piece I saw on institutional level was that. But I think in terms of cultural Christianity, it seems like you have. And again, if we go back to the class piece for me, I, I feel like uh, you know there's this reality that a lot of working class, poor, rural America identifies with faith, whereas a lot of kind of the urban progressive elite does not. And so it seems like that was a factor that, that for me kind of nuances, you know, that it doesn't justify. I do think we need to own, like Daniel, kind of own our identity as, as the church in, in those things. But um, I, I think there's a nuance to recognizing that there, yeah. I don't think it was so much like, we love Jesus, let's get Trump, you know, as much as a lesser of two evils, we, we don't like him, we feel backed into a corner, and there's these other pieces driving driving the train. I don't know. It's, no, and, and look, in reality, there is an evangelical machine out there. Yeah. I mean, let's not get it twisted, right? And they do have power. The moral yeah. is real, it exists, it's out there, they have money, they've been around a long time. And yet, Yet, I had a buddy of mine who is an, an, an elder at another church, and he started talking about some of these issues. And I said, 80% of evangelicals, they said, now, who can trust the number, right? Like, after the election, they said Hillary was going on, right? So who can trust the numbers? But let's just, for, for argument's sake, say 80% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And I said, 80%, can you believe that? My elder friend of mine, who's in a conservative church, said, no, help. You consider yourself a Christian? I'm considering myself a Christian. I said, but everyone else considers us a Christian. They consider us an evangelical the way we think. They consider us an evangelical and they're going to put us in that bucket. Period. So my question is, we don't have resources yet to control the story of the narrative and create a whole different category and definition of what it means to be Christian. Like, I like to call myself a Protestant. Um, and meaning I'm, I'm theologically conservative, I'm socially 
fairly liberal. That's that's you know, and I sit in that or progressive. I, I kind of sit in that tension. Now, who's been able to do that well? You tell me. I'll tell you. Black people. Black people. And always. So if you want to know how to do this stuff well, who've been doing it for a long, 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 long time, get with some African Americans, get with some Latinos, get with some Asians, get with some Native Americans, because they have been able to navigate that space extremely well. When you talk about bottom-up theology, which is where I think this new brand of Christianity is going, which is learning from the poor, learning from the marginalized, learning from the broken, the beaten, those that aren't at the center but are on the margins of power, that's, that's where I think the win is going to be. That's where I think the power of this new way of being a Christian and Protestant in a new world will be unique for the church and an opportunity for us to be a witness. So I think we can, it, yes, there is this evangelical machine out there. It is real. It has money. It has power. It's older. It's aging. And yet at the same time, there's Christians out there that need a whole, want a whole new category and definition of what it means to be that. I just go back to the old Protestant, right? And I say, you know, when people ask me, you're a Christian, I'm like, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> But it means this and that. It doesn't mean just this. It doesn't mean just that. It's both. Yeah. Well, then if we zoom out to, you know, I think one of the things we want to do is kind of zoom out and go, at, at the 50,000 foot level, how, how do we how do we look at this even theologically or through a gospel lens at what's happening? And one of my big reflections has just been on, uh, you know, the early church had the saying that God gives uh, people a society the leaders they deserve, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. And whether or not you believe that for back then, uh, I, I think, you know, where you maybe, you know, it wasn't a democracy per se, in a democracy today, I feel like you can't necessarily get away from this picture of, you know, God giving us what we want, in a sense. And one of my convictions has been in Scripture that one of God's greatest forms of judgment is giving us what we want. And so uh, Romans 1 uses the language of the wrath of God for that. Not if you do these things, then God's wrath will come. I mean, that, that's other places too. But when you do these things, God's wrath is being revealed against you as a society. And so uh, as I've been just kind of watching the election, not just... I mean, both Trump and Hillary, you know, like for, for both of those, there's been kind of this sense of going, dude, uh, they both seem to reflect back some of the worst characteristics of us as a society, you know? Like with Trump, with the sexual immorality, with the greed, with just the idolatry, you know? With Hillary, with kind of the uh, deception and the pursuit of power at any cost and the two-facedness of various things, you know? And, and just going like, it's felt more like, not like they're the exceptions so much as like they're almost like a mere reflecting us back to ourselves. And there's this passage in uh, 1 Chronicles 13 where, where, where David uh, messes things up. He's king. The societies, there's going to be impact on society and God kind of gives him a choice. He's got, there are these three judgments, David. You get to pick which one. You know? And this has kind of felt like God going, you got a choice. There's two judgments and you got to pick which one. You know? <laughs> 
and and I'm not saying that like I'm not saying that that necessarily means they're equal. And I feel like that's where the debate lies. And I think for most folks, it wasn't like, hey, this is the ideal. It's felt like for most folks, it's kind of like, dude, we're, we we got to pick the lesser two evils kind of thing, you know. But there has been this sense of if we zoom out at the fifty thousand foot level, I have this sense of man, God giving us over to what we want, what we deserve, and 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 when we talk about lament, a part of the lament for me before God is going, man, a lamenting this, the, the social division, the reality of going, man, we, it feels like we are a society increasingly under the wrath of God in that sense, you know? And, you know, to that story, I mean, think about it for a second. Um, you know, Israel wanted to be like the other nations, and they wanted a king. And uh, God said, all right, I'm give you someone that's flawed, right? That doesn't, and they said, their king up like a god and created an idol of it. And I think to a certain degree, even in our Protestant evangelical spaces, what we end up doing is setting up a king called politics. And that becomes our god and our idol. And we serve it. And we know about the depth of disappointment we feel when our person is in office. I remember one day I, I came out of a church fairly beat up. I was, like I said, I was in that big white evangelical space and at the end I felt like I was done wrong. And so we decided to part ways. And I was angry for a couple of years at that church. And God stopped me in my tracks and said, the reason you're so angry at it is because you made an idol out of that church. You wanted it to meet in you what only I could. And as a result, you've been deeply disappointed and disappointed led to bitterness. And that's oftentimes what happens when we set up a king of president or president-elect as king. Now that's not to, that's not to make small of our disappointment and the, the profound issues that I share with many of you in this room about the, how the platform was, what the platforms ran on. But yet at the same time, I'm, I'm reminded of a scripture, and I'll read it to you here in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. It says this, the word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Thank God for God that, that, that the kingdoms of this world will be shaken, but there is a kingdom that'll never be shaken. And if you get that screwed down at the very core of your heart, guess what? You get to do two things extremely well. One, you get to protest the hell out of this country, right? With respect and dignity and, and peacefully, right? And yet, and yet you get to be a citizen in this in this country without being beholden to it at the same time, right? Living as a stranger, ambassador, and exile, right? Like living in the tension between two worlds. And you get to put those two things together in very unique ways. But you have to get unhooked from idolatry. All of us looking for a king. And that king can be economics, marriage, you know what I'm saying? Uh, politics, whatever, church. You gotta get unhooked from that. And so that, that's, um, 
one of the things that I see is that that temptation to want to set something up as king. Yeah, totally. And I love that phrase you use, uh, protest the hell out of the country. You know, like, yes, metaphorically. And I'd say also, though, literally, like, protesting the powers of hell in our country. And, and I don't think that's a partisan thing. I think we see on both sides, like, that we would protest, acknowledge, and bring out into the light uh, things like the racism and the misogyny and the xenophobia on the one side, and on the other, the the the, uh, the indifference to uh, poverty and some of the, the, the class divides. That That's, like, a major theme of God's anger in Scripture, and that we see the power of hell at work in creating some of these, you know, um, the demonization of whatever people group on, on both sides. Yes. And if you ever saw the movie The Butler, I loved it because you had, uh, what's his name? Uh, Forrest Whitaker, right? He's the butler. And the greatest, you know, like, in the most powerful uh, government of our country, right? He's the butler to the president, right? And yet his son is out there protesting, right? He's out there in the South. I mean, they're protesting. And there's two ways to protest, right? Like one working inside structures of power, one working outside of it. That is the power of the church, our ability to do both. So when we talk about you know, when we talk about protest, I thought it was striking on Friday night. Hollow, we did our fundraising banquet. We were on Fifth and Burnside. Now, you know what was happening on Burnside, right across the street from us? The protest! There were thousands of people walking up and down Burnside protesting, and yet inside the building, at the Airbnb building, was another protest. It's called Hollow. And that protest was working inside school systems, creating culturally responsive work that is running counter to the educational system that does not speak on some levels to the kids they serve. And so we got to do both, right? Some of your protest is going to mean representing communities of color, representing the disenfranchised, the broken, right? The beating, those that don't have power, fighting for that power in the school system, in the governmental systems, in your community, etc. And for some of us, it means marching. It means standing on bridges. Absolutely, it's both and we can walk and shoot down at the same time. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when we talk about you know protests too, I think the the, the background it, it seems like it's it's a giving a voice, right? It's having a voice. It, it's letting your voice be heard. And and as we talk about with society, kind of protest, and then I think with God, I think that's where the lament comes in. You know, one of the powers of the traditions of lament. I, I think it's one of the reasons that we have done such a poor job with division in our societies. We want to jump right away to the fix, and versus being able to uh, bring our voices before God. And, and so one of the things that I I think we really hope you feel is the the freedom to process, to grieve, to not feel like we got to put a quick band-aid over wherever you're coming out on the political spectrum, wherever you know that we can actually um, bring our voices to God and not feel like we've got to kind of shut that down and pretend that that isn't there. So you know, and one of the hopes was that um, for today is yeah that that we could create space for that, you know, and like you said, next week we're looking at unity and and all. Also, uh, that we could give each other space for kind of freedom of conscience too. You know, recognizing uh, I, I, I wasn't one of them, but I know there I, I know there were a number of folks who I think fell back into a corner where it's like, okay, character issues 
Trump feels horrible, but character Haley's got hers too, but policy is, you know, the, the sense of going, uh, I think we need to be slow to demonize people, even as we give voice to our real concerns, you know, and that we can create space for one another's conscience and, and how, uh, yeah, and how we maybe used our the voice of our vote, you know. But there's a lot more than there's a lot more than just our vote in terms of how we have a voice in our community and creating space for one another's conscience and the freedom to give ours. And that's one of the areas that Christianity did a great job. Uh, even in the early, you know, first century, it, it, it created space for conscience. It dignified women, slaves, the poor, right? Uh, there was an assumption which written word for the illiterate to read and to understand. And so, um, and that's because what Jesus, you know, even when Jesus said, when the, to what is Caesar's to Caesar's and what is to God, God, that was like creating space for, for dissent and conscience. And I think one of the things that we have to do well is is to create space for each other, even when we deeply disagree. Right? The worst thing we could do is fight for the poor to be rehumanized while simultaneously dehumanizing more that have rehumanized them. Right? That's that's you're working against what you're working for. And uh, so that's 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 the liberty and freedom of the gospel, right? To create dignity, to rehumanize everyone. That all of us are in these bracketed chains of, of, of dehumanization. And the only way we do is through the cross and through his work. And uh, to understand each other, even when we disagree with one So one of the things I want to think of, just for, for the sake of time, is as we think about process, we think about protest, um, and creating space for each other. I want to go to the communion table. But my question to you, Josh, is what does the, in times like this, what does the communion table mean for you? Yeah, definitely. Man, so I, I would say, you know, I think, uh, it, one of the themes you mentioned was this kind of owning our hypocrisy and, and that may not be you may not feel as an individual but identify like I would say I, I'm, I'm a Christian before I'm an American but I'm also both right like I'm, I'm with Jesus first as, and so uh, as Jesus people I think we together are invited to own kind of the brokenness that we see within the church and some of the, the fractures and divisions within the church that have come up and then secondarily I think as an American recognizing my society and our society the brokenness and the fracture but as we bring that to the table, I think we come before Christ who was broken, who himself, his body was divided, his blood was shed, his person was fractured. The very person of God came into our midst and allowed himself to be fractured, dehumanized, torn apart, broken by the kind of broken rebelliousness of humanity. And he was broken by the empire and he was broken by the people of God. Like Jesus took on the fracturing of the people of God and he took on the fracturing of the, the society and the empires of our world in order ultimately to bring healing. And again, we don't want to jump to that. That's coming to but, but as we come, we come seeking Christ. We come bringing our fracturedness and our brokenness to the table in order to receive the one who is fractured and broken for us in order ultimately through the power of God on the other side to make us whole. And so when I think about the communion table as we get ready to go to it, 
Um, I think the beauty of the cross is, is that there's no, as the scripture says, uh, there's no more bond nor free, male nor female, right? Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, everyone through his work has access. And that doesn't mean we remove our distinctiveness because there's incredible diversity in the body of Christ. But we all have access, right? Because Christ's goal was to form a whole new family, a whole new people from all across the globe that would represent him. Rich, poor, young, old, black, brown, white, you name it. Uh, and the communion table represents that kind of access that we have to him and to each other that eliminates the things that divide in our society. The cross unites. We'll hit more of that next Yeah, week. totally. Well, yeah, just a lot. You know, I love the, uh, the literature had the same too, like the Jesus, the you know, the, the table, Jesus' body is the body that makes us a body, you know? And whatever those divisions are, as we come to Christ, so, you know, normally I eat food, I take in bread, and it becomes a part of me, but the mystery that as we take in this, this bread and this wine, we become a part of it. We become grafted into the body of Christ. And so ultimately, I think where there is that, hope or that you know we're looking forward towards it, it's uh it's not in pretending the divisions aren't there but it's bringing it to christ who unites us in himself jesus is what brings us together and so to, today as we come to the, the table there's two things going um on the one hand uh i want us to come to the table with a solemn attitude, reflecting on Christ, reflecting on what does the bread and the wine mean for us today as people grieve. And yet at the same time, I want us to come to the table festive, right? Like there's, there's a new family, there's a new people. Uh, they're called the church, right? That extend and represent the kingdom of God and be the people that God intends us to be in the world that is living counter to the culture and those around you. And so today, as we come to the communion table, grab somebody. Grab your family, grab someone you don't know. Everybody goes to the table with somebody today. And let's, let's sit in this space where we don't have to answer. I'm sure we didn't solve every problem today. I don't know if we solved any problem, but... I don't think we solved one problem today. But let's sit in attention. Let's listen on both sides. Let's come back next Sunday and talk about how do we move forward? What does that mean? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Josh, can you pray real quick? Jesus, we thank you, Lord. You are a king, and you are not a king who sits uh, abstract and distant and far away. God, you are a king who has entered the fractured divisions of your world, that you have taken on uh, the destruction, God, the brokenness, the things that tear us as humanity apart, the things that we see currently even tearing our country apart, God. And, and you have felt the true grief and uh, weight and, and pain of our condition. God, and so we come to you as, as, our, as our God, one who is not far off or unfamiliar with our, our grief or our suffering or our confusion, and, but one who is intimate with it. And so we want to bring the fullness of where we're at this morning, Jesus, before the fullness of who you are. And pray that you would encounter us. 
uh, in, in this space, uh, that, that this would be a place where we can sit in the tension together and yet encounter your presence in the midst of that tension. Jesus, we pray that even through this, you might be working in us as a people to make us a, a, a signpost, kind of a different different kind of family, God, a signpost of your kingdom in the midst of the empires of your world where uh, we can come together and, and, and sit together in the tension, uh, not ignoring uh, divisions, not ignoring differences in all, God, but um, not uniformity, God, but seeking a unity that comes in you in the midst of the full, diverse expression of who we are and what we bring to the table, God. And so, Jesus, may you be glorified and form us as your people uh, for this time and this place. Amen.